Well, I want to welcome you again to Door Creek. If you're a guest here today, my name's Mark, and uh, we're in the middle of our series five, Questions of Christianity. Today's subject is a toughie. Why does God allow suffering? So I really wish we could have this conversation at your favorite coffee shop or across the table in our breakfast nook. It's the kind of subject that does a lot better face-to-face and relationship and conversation. It's not always that helpful to read an essay, to go to a philosophical or theological lecture. And so I hope to invite you into a conversation today. And I'd like to begin by uh, sharing Bono's story behind one of their new releases in their recent album, Songs of Innocence. And he's talking about the background of a song that, as I've listened to it, it's just got this haunting refrain. It's called Raised by Wolves. He writes about this song, Ireland in the 70s was a tough place. On any other Friday at 5.30 at night in 1974, I would have been down on Talbot Street at the local record shop. On May 17th, I rode my bike to school that day, and I dodged one of the bloodiest moments in a history that divided an island. Three car bombs coordinated to detonate at the same time destroyed Dublin's city center. My old friend Andy Rowan was locked in his father's van as his dad ran to save the victims scattered like refuse across the streets. The song begins with these words. Face down on a broken street, there's a man in the corner in a pool of misery. I'm in a white van as a red sea covers the ground. Metal crash, I can't tell what it is, but I take a look, and now I'm sorry I did. 5.30 on a Friday night, 33 good people cut down. And then this refrain, I don't believe anymore. I don't believe anymore. There's something about the construct of suffering more importantly, the experience of suffering that brings the fight of faith to bear. For some, it's too big an obstacle. How can I believe in a loving God who's all-powerful and allows all this carnage and all this evil and all this pain? And for others of us, it just reminds us that we are in a fight of faith. I took the dogs for a walk Friday afternoon, we've got kind of two walking routes. There's the, uh, the neighborhood one up the hill, and then there's the one out, we call it the bridge walk out through the cornfields. So I, I decided it's time to do the bridge run, and I cut through Little Kitty Park on my way to the bridge with dogs in tow, and as I was walking through the park, I was reminded again how this stuff is everywhere, right in my own neighborhood. There's this beautiful tree, it's got to be a 20-foot maple tree, it's got a, a stone with the word Amanda carved into it. Didn't know Amanda, but I heard the story that she had some childhood illness and died very young. And then I was reminded of the double blow for this family as I continued to walk, and there was a second tree, a little smaller, Austin. Austin's funeral was right here in this room. He's just a great kid, loved baseball. He was out horsing around with his friends out in the field with their four-by-fours 
and he crashed and hit a tree. He's gone. I believe it's our neighbor's only two children, two trees, to remind me and them of the lives that were ripped from their hands. And so there's something about suffering in a unique way that raises the question, why? And if you've ever been there, you get it. And I I don't know who introduced this notion that as Christians, we ought never to ask the question, why? It's like some really unspiritual place to be. I find great comfort that in the midst of Christ's agony on the cross, he asked the why question, didn't he? Why? Godly people wrestle with this question. This isn't just a question for skeptics and atheists. This is a question for people who love God, desire to follow God, and are trying to make sense of life and faith in the midst of the crucibles of life, right? The psalmist. Godly men of old, they raise the question, Psalm 10, verse 1, Oh Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? Again in 44, 23, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever. And yet the simple truth came to bear as I read this quote from Peter Kreeft, philosopher, teaches over at Boston College. Only in a world where faith is difficult can faith exist. But it's a fight. It's a fight that my friend Andrew Chung, orthopedic surgeon, elder at our church in Wheaton College Church, was definitely in. He let the elders know as he called us together in his home, we sat in a circle that he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. There is no good good prognosis. And it is a painful, painful way to die. We prayed for him and he would remind us through correspondence of his fight. At one point, he wrote to me these words, I'd ask God over and over, why are you allowing me to suffer this pain? It is of no benefit to you or me. This is so meaningless. And so the reasoning behind the struggle here can go like this for many people. Here it is up on the, on the slide, this syllogism. If God is always good, he would destroy evil. If God is all-powerful, he could destroy evil. Evil and suffering is all around us. Therefore, God is not good, or at least he's not all-powerful. And one of the things we need to wrestle with is this isn't just a Christ follower's dilemma. Why does God allow suffering? It is everybody's dilemma. It may not be exactly the same question. You may be an atheist, but then your question, you may be a skeptic, an agnostic, not even sure if there is a God. Then your question is, how do you make sense of the world that you live in that has touches and of beauty and, and truth and, and things that are just fantastic, but a world that also has pain and suffering and evil? What's your answer? Because you've got to account for it, just as the Christ follower needs to account for it. So over time, you can reduce the answers into these three areas. Atheism says evil exists, God doesn't. Pantheism, evil doesn't exist, God does. 
That's kind of a, a tough one to, to dialogue with. Sorry if any of you are pantheists, but I just want to smack you and say, did that hurt? You say, it does. It, it does exist. <laughs> I, I wouldn't do that. But I, I just can't catch up with the denial of that. Um, evil and God exist is the theistic, a, a, a God-centered worldview. So what I'd like us to do is to consider questions, whether we're a Christ follower, whether we're an atheist, whether we're a skeptic, an agnostic. I want us to consider some questions together before we look at the Bible's answer. So the first question is this. Is it possible that God could exist, be good and all-powerful, and destroy evil later? Is that a possibility? Because that, in fact, is a storyline of the Bible. That God is doing something about evil, has done something about evil, and one day will completely eliminate the possibility and the presence of evil. Here's a, a glimpse of what's to come when Christ returns in the very last book of the Bible, at the end of the story. It's not yet, it's to come. Revelation 21, 4 and 5. He, Christ, will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's where we live right now. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Is it possible that God exists, that he's good and all-powerful, and is going to, for his reasons, for his purposes, that we may not completely understand deal with it finally in the future. There's a second question. Is it possible that something that appears pointless, like my friend Andrew, meaningless to us, could actually have purpose or at least be used by God for good in our lives? So think about all the things that we have done where we have eyes wide open, gone in a direction that we knew was going to cost us, was going to be painful physically in some other way that would involve some kind of suffering, but we did it for the greater good that lied behind, lay behind that. Now, I didn't do ballet, but I, I look at, I'm just going, how did you women do that? How do those ballerinas do that? That has to be very painful to figure out how to walk on your toes or whatever you're doing. I don't walk on my feet like that. I think about what we often say in sports, no pain, no gain, right? We go to the doctor and sometimes they have to hurt us to diagnose the problem. And sometimes we have to go through pain to have that which is wrong with us dealt with. We get that. We get that. Is it possible that it's not meaningless pain? There are actually parents in this world, not a lot of them, who pray that their children could feel pain. There's this very rare disease called SEPA, congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis. So I'll use the case of a, a little girl, Gabby, who's from Minnesota. She doesn't feel any pain. Part of this, she doesn't sweat, doesn't shed tears. Average life expectancy, 25 years. At four months, she bit her fingers 
until they bled. As she continued to grow and use her teeth, they, they ended up going, we just got to pull out all her teeth. She could place her hand on a hot stove. She wouldn't know anything. Parents of children with SEPA, pray God, help my child to feel pain. Is it possible that God could use even pain and suffering for good? There's a third question. So if we don't have a worldview that has God at the center, or we're really unsure about that, then how do we start to work out the problem? And if what's at the center of our understanding of this world are the forces of evolution that supposedly have us evolving to higher states of being and existence, how do we account for things actually aren't getting better in human history? We've got to deal with the reality that the 20th century was on record the bloodiest, most vicious, evil century that's ever taken place in human history. Some historians have the death toll at like 180 million. We're talking about 60 million wiped out through World Wars I and II. 60, another 60 million by guys like Stalin and Hitler and Mao. How do we account for that? I caught up with a response to um, Professor Dawkins' article in a British newspaper called The Independent. He had written a, a, an article, Is God the Root of All Evil? And so this guy, Stephen Richmond, wrote this response. I found this. He said, Sir, I like Professor Dawkins. I'm an atheist, but I cannot agree with the overly simplistic view that God is essentially to blame for everything. I've come to the view that most of the evils of the 20th century were the products of the Age of Enlightenment. And the notion that by applying rational pr- principles, humanity could be perfected. This belief spawned the twin evils of fascism and communism. The 20th century was arguably the most bloody and brutal period in all of human history, and virtually none of this industrial-scale slaughter had ostensibly religious roots. To assert, as Dawkins appears to do, that Hitler's problem was his Christianity is a fact that has apparently escaped all serious historians. He is also noticeably silent on the mass murders carried out under both Stalin and Mao. Is this because he's failed to uncover even the slightest hint of a religious link? I accept that historically much evil can be laid at the door of religion. That's a hard pill for me to swallow. But friends, we've got we to gotta own that. It's not true religion. It's not the way of God. It's not the way of Christ. But in the name of religion, that is true. Much evil can be laid at the door of religion. But... I also found that I have regretfully to accept that the unprecedented slaughter of the 20th century is one of the end products of the rational atheism that I adhere to. This is a possibility that Professor Dawkins appears to be unwilling to accept. So the question, how do we make sense of evil if we don't have a theistic worldview? There's a fourth question. Is it possible that the very question, why does God allow suffering, in fact, point to the possibility of there being a God? C.S. Lewis, writing about this, said, suffering was a far greater problem for me when I was an atheist. It better prove God's existence. He says, the fact that I decried injustice in the world begged how I knew what was just and what was evil. You you get the line of reasoning here? 
if we put God on trial for not dealing with things like evil and pain and suffering, how do we know about the category of evil? Lewis says it points to a moral God that has set morality in the hearts of people. There's a final question. And that is, have you ever thought of this? That when we ask God to deal with evil and remove evil and the causes of pain and suffering, have we ever thought that part of the solution might be the removal of me? There's an illustration of this very point, and it comes out of the war trial of Adolf Eichmann, who headed the Gestapo department that was all about the concentration camps, what was called the final solution. He self-proclaimed himself as the Jewish specialist. So he's the architect behind all the evil of six million people, primarily Jews, um, mass murder, genocide. And so, I don't know if you remember, but he escapes, I forget if he's down in Brazil or Argentina. They catch him in the 60s and he goes to trial. And at his trial, uh, one of the witnesses is this guy named Yechiel Denur. And Denur entered the courtroom and when he stared at the man who was responsible there was just a hushed silence. I mean, it was just this really tense moment of this witness coming in to see this man who undoubtedly had caused the loss of life of so many of his friends, family, and loved ones. And then suddenly, as he walked in to the courtroom, having stared at him, he broke down. He began to sob. He collapsed to the floor. I couldn't believe it that there, I actually found a picture of this very scene in the courtroom. And through an interview with Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes, he said, I didn't collapse out of anger or bitterness. He said, what struck me in an instant was this terrifying realization. He said, I was afraid of myself. I mean, he's looking at this guy and he, and he doesn't, look like a monster. He looks like just an ordinary man. I was afraid about myself. I saw that I'm capable to do this. I am exactly like he. So some questions to work through. And now, how does the Bible work through it? So here's what I want to do. I want to quickly move through the movements of the Bible. And the Bible moves from creation in the opening two chapters to the fall or rebellion. Chapter three, the effects of rebellion going forward. And then it moves to redemption, which actually has its beginnings in the fall. And then it goes to restoration. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So grab your Bible and let's go to the very beginning of the story, Genesis 1. So the book opens, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So God creates everything from nothing and the repeated phrase in chapter 1, you'll see that phrase at the end of verse 10, 
verse 13, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, verse 31, is this, it was good. The one exception, day six, the creation of man, it was very good. So God creates everything out of nothing, and it's all good. It's perfect. We know in verse 26 of chapter 1 that we're created in God's image. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the seas, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So he created us in his image. And part of the understanding of his image is that we have the capacity to choose. We have the capacity to choose. We have the capacity to choose to love God or not, to love our neighbor or not, to serve God or not, to trust in him or trust in something else, to follow his path or take our own path. That's part of being created in his image. So sometimes we're fond of thinking, man, why couldn't God have just created? I mean, he's God. Why couldn't he create a place where suffering and evil wasn't a possibility? Well, here's what I know. From the very beginning, what we know about creation is day six is the high point. Day six is the creation of Adam and Eve. And what we know about day six is this, that Adam and Eve were created to have relationship with God. A relationship that's not to be like the chatty Kathy kind that my sisters grew up. Any, any of you remember the chatty Kathy doll? That was the most obnoxious thing in my house growing up. Because <laughs> she only said the one thing. I think it was the one thing. You pulled the string and it was, I love you. I love you. Stop it. <laughs> so we're not robots. If, I guess if it was like we, 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 we weren't looking for loving relationships and God wasn't looking for loving relationships with us, then yeah, I guess he could have done it. And we'd have just been Ottomans. We would have been robots. But God created us, not because he needed us. He has this eternal community going on that's perfect. There's nothing like the Trinity. It's starting to get boring, isn't it? Let's, 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 let's create some other people because it's just, it's just us. No, there wasn't anything like that. He created us for his glory and for us to experience a relationship with him. And I think sometimes we forget that. Created his image means that we have the capacity to love. That is stamped in humanity. That's part of our nature. The ability to experience and extend love. And that transcends feelings. That transcends the, the chemical reactions of our body and the hormones in our body. It is rooted in our hearts. It's rooted in our will where we are amazed. We're amazed when someone, knowing, we, knowing they have a choice to either move towards us in a loving relationship or reject us, we're amazed that someone would do that. Ladies, that's why we're completely freaked out to ask someone out for a date. Because like, what if they say no? That's why we're amazed when our wives said, I do. You do? (laughs) There's a big risk there, right? Because it's about a commitment that's rooted in the will where we seek the good and the best of someone else 
before our own. And then when we've actually wronged someone and hurt that person and experienced forgiveness, man, that humbles us. It takes us to our knees and it drives our love deeper still. That's an imprint in humanity. And it's no surprise then that some of the greatest highs and the greatest lows of our experience are in those close relationships. So at the very beginning, we see that everything's good. We're created for a relationship. And we see that there truly is a possibility of evil or else why would God say, by the way, Adam and Eve, I've created this awesome place for you. Here it is, the Garden of Eden. Everything's there for you to enjoy. It's all yours. I've just put a fence around one thing, one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that fruit because the day you eat of that fruit, what's going to happen? You're going to die. Hello? You're going to suffer pain. You're going to die. I'm warning you from the very beginning in this good world that the possibility was there. And that possibility was acted on chapter 3. Doubting God's goodness, rejecting his rule, wanting to play God of their own lives, Adam and Eve with eyes wide open go after that fruit. And everything changes like a drop of food coloring and a clear glass of water. Everything changes. The relationship with God, with each other, the relationship with God's creation and creation itself. All of it changes. Someone says, so can we go back to that serpent? Now let's go back there. Because like the serpent just shows up and you get it really quick. The serpent's bad. The serpent caused Adam and Eve to buy the lie that messed the whole thing up. So we don't know anything in Genesis chapter 3, like what, who, what, how's this work? Did God create this serpent? Is God responsible for the evil because he created this? So what do we know about the serpent? Revelation twelve nine says, this serpent is none other than the devil. What we know about scripture is The devil actually is a fallen angel. Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28, through these beautiful words of poetry, start talking about this one who is in the very presence of God, guarding his holiness, wanted to be like God, was jealous that God got all the attention and glory, wanted it for himself, led a rebellion against God. Jesus talks about seeing Satan fall from from heaven as he's kicked out by God in Luke chapter 10. So the Bible's clear that even angels are given the capacity from the moment of their creation to choose to love God or not. And the serpent, like Adam and Eve, like you and me, chose not to. So God not only created a perfect place with the possibility, but in the midst of it all, of uttering the curses, he brings this beautiful promise. Go look at verse 14 of chapter 3. Now, to be sure, this is veiled. It's mysterious. We know some things. We don't know everything. It's hindsight that gives us the 2020 of, oh, that's what's going on here. So he's cursing now the serpent. And he says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, here's the promise. And I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman between your offspring and hers. And he, 
This is a male descendant of Eve will crush your head, a fatal blow, and you will strike his heel. The victory over the enemy will come through the bruising of the heel. The male descendant of Eve, as you chase it through the storyline in scripture, points all the way fast forward to Jesus. So we say, well, why doesn't God do anything about evil? From the moment evil entered into the scene, God made a promise to deal with it. To deal with it. Enter in the third movement. Creation, the fall, redemption. So there's the promise of redemption, the promise of the cross. And there's this promises of the cross. So you've got this promise. It's veiled here in Genesis 3.15. You learn more in Psalm 22 about the sufferings of this one whose hands and feet will be pierced. This unbelievable, a thousand years before the crucifixion, detailed account, prophecy about Christ's crucifixion. We catch up with more prophecy in a place like Isaiah chapter 53, where he talks about this coming king, this Messiah, who's not just going to be a conqueror, but he's going to conquer through suffering. And he's going to suffer in our place for that which separated us from God and has brought all this pain and suffering. So here's on the screen. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, though he had done no violence. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. The story of redemption in promise, in prophecy, and then as it's fulfilled in Christ coming to this earth, his living his perfect life, and his suffering on the cross reminds us that God has done something about evil and suffering at great cost. The giving of his only son. He died in our place. Redemption. At the very beginning of the story. And that redemption has always been painting this picture of the end of the story, of restoration. And in the midst of this world where we read just this week about a father because of great hatred, I'm assuming, goes back into his, I think, girlfriend or maybe it was his wife, and he goes in with a knife and he kills somebody, but he kills his own flesh and blood. And we just can't make sense with the horrific craziness in our world. But in the midst of crazy, there's beauty and there's grace. And there are signs of restoration. The biggest signs are the signs that are seen and experienced within the human heart of a relationship with God restored by God's grace through faith in his son. And so restoration is the longing of God's people in the Old Testament. Restoration was the longing of God's people when Christ showed up. But what they thought they wanted was far too little. What they thought they wanted is just a restored national identity free of Rome to get back to the days of King David where they were a great nation. 
But the restoration that God's talking about is far greater than that. It's the restoration that includes the eradication of all that is wrong and all that causes suffering. Jesus' teaching makes it clear that he's come to fulfill the promises. Jesus' miracles, the appetizers of what is yet to come, these tastes and these little beautiful vignettes of restoration, restoration, the withered hand healed, the issue of blood stopped, the dead child raised, restoration, the the greedy tax collector freed from the love of money, restoration, restoration. And we long for that. We long for that. And so we got to remember, God cares about evil, and that's why there is hell. God cares about our suffering. That's why there's heaven. We'll talk about heaven and hell next week. And Christ suffered hell. He suffered hell. Hell is, we're going to say this next week a lot, it's separated from the Father. When he took on all our sin, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that there was separation. That's his cry. God, why have you forsaken me? Because when he took on sin, our sin, my sin, he was separated from the Father. He experienced hell so that we wouldn't. He left heaven so that we could experience the new heaven and the new earth. And we long for that. We long for that. Can you imagine that which is causing you pain and suffering? Can you imagine that not being there anymore? Can you imagine not even having the memory of that that would cause you that heavy-heartedness? We long for that because we were made for that. And so here's what I'd like to say. If there's a line that you can remember from this message, it's this. When suffering and evil and pain raises a question mark in your mind or is like a fish hook in your heart, remember the cross. Remember the cross. When, when you're going through suffering right now, remember Christ's suffering. Your suffering ought to remind you of Christ's suffering. My friend Andrew, in this email, talks about this wild night where he made that connection. He wrote these words in his email to me. God visited me last Thursday night while I was in bed. I had not been able to sleep that night and remember getting up to use the bathroom about 3 a.m. I didn't see a vision or feel the flutter of an angel wing or hear still small voices, but I had sweet communion with Christ like a child with his father. I remembered words from him flooding my soul. They didn't enter my ears, but I felt like my mouth was wide open and I was eating them up. In the last few weeks I've had that I'd been in pain, I'd ask God over and over, why? Why the suffering? Why the pain? It's of no benefit to you or me. It's also meaningless. But that night, he came and explained to me why. He knows the pain I was going through, but he wanted me to experience this pain so that I could understand more fully the pain that his dear son endured. I've been a Christian for a long time. I've accepted God's gift of his son on the cross for my sins, but I'd never fully understood why Jesus had to endure the agony on the cross. That night, I understood why. Enduring the pain and suffering was part of the price he paid for us since pain was part of the punishment for sin. I also finally understood the awfulness of sin. It leads to pain and death, which I would have had to endure in hell had it not been 
for my Savior. He put everything in clear perspective so that I could understand the whole panorama of his great redemptive plan for man. I remember thinking, let this last forever. During the visit, he did not indicate to me if he was going to heal me. It did not even occur to me to ask him at the time. It didn't seem to be that important. When pain and suffering raises the question mark, remember the cross. Let your suffering take you to Christ. When pain and suffering raises the question mark, remember the cross. Remember that it is the worst thing that's ever happened in human history and God used it to be the greatest thing that's ever happened in human history. Remember the cross because God works good things from hard things. The cross was evil. There are men that are going to be held in account, all of us, but I'm thinking principally of those who crucified him and wrongly tried him and convicted him. It was evil, but God used it for the greatest good, for the greatest good. There's nothing like suffering in our life to chip away all that isn't Christ in our life. There's nothing like suffering in our life that doesn't help us come alongside those who are suffering. In 1992, Lori was in the midst of um, an exciting pregnancy that wasn't exciting very long because she was so sick, so sick. And after five and a half months of just incredible illness, uh, she lost the baby. So we went to the hospital where we delivered our three previous children. Same floor. And I remember holding this little baby boy whom we named Gabriel in my hand. His feet were as long as my nail on my thumb. I remember so clearly holding that child and weeping and being tested at something that we've always talked about. God, these are your gifts to us and we hold on to all that you've given us with open hands and with a hand open, handing little Gabriel back. And I remember there were a lot of wonderful people who came around us But there was one in particular that ministered in a unique way. He was my friend and colleague, Neil Nielsen, who had gone through the identical situation. And when he walked into my living room and I saw Neil, I began to weep. And as he embraced me, I knew that he knew what I was going through. I knew that. And that is a powerful thing to remember that as we go through suffering, we are uniquely positioned then to minister to people going through the same kinds of suffering. And finally, when suffering and pain raises the question mark, remember the cross. Remember the one who, like Neil, understands. You know, the Christian faith is the only faith that has a God who suffers. At the heart of our faith, the hope of our faith, the cornerstone of our faith involves the sufferings of Christ. And so we remember, this is what people need. This is what your friend needs right now. They don't need philosophical, tricky arguments. They don't need a bombastic sermon. They don't need to read a philosophical essay. They need personal comfort. And there is nobody who can bring that 
more than Christ, who says, come unto me, all you who are weary and weighed down, I'll give you rest. And when you think of all that Christ experienced and suffered, I can hardly imagine a thing that you're going through where he he can't say, well, but I don't get that one. So listen to the list. Hatred, jealousy, slander, gossip, violence, cruelty, loneliness, abandonment, isolation, betrayal, poverty, humiliation, mockery, ridicule, threats, false accusations, injustice, oppression, rejection, crucifixion, death. All this is the perfect, sinless Son of God. So there's nothing like suffering to raise up the question. And when you see the question mark, run to the cross, run to the cross to a God who experienced suffering as he lost his son, to his son who experienced suffering as he gave his life as an expression of his love for us, the father out of his love for us, the spirit who comes to comfort us as an expression of God's love for us. Let's pray. So our triune loving God embrace us with this truth that you're a God who created us for a loving relationship. And though we spurned it, you've pursued us at the great cost of the suffering of your own son. Lord Jesus, you suffered what we deserved and you will one day come back again to remove it for all time. We long for that day and until that day, strengthen us in the storm when our faith is weak. Grant faith, strengthen faith, and may we be a merciful, compassionate people to all who are suffering today. Wherever we find them, for your honor and glory we pray. Amen.